Thank you very much. Um, I would just like to say one thing. We can't see you. The light's not on you. Oh. Well, I'm not going to stop now, I'm sorry. Um, he says, you can't see me. I would have thought that was an added blessing. Um, I, I just want to give one word of warning in this subject. Uh, the more that I have come uh, to see the real key and the real uh, root of the Middle East situation, and particularly the ongoing conflict uh, with Israel on the part of our Arab, uh, Arab neighbors and have identified it, uh, the more I have noticed that it is a spiritual problem. It is not a political problem or an economic problem. And I, uh, before we even begin, I want to ask for your help. There are naive and foolish Christians, I'm afraid, rather a large percentage of the church, who as soon as they hear a message such as this, get the tape and send it to Islamic leaders, as if by so doing they are going to win them. What it has done, in particular in one country, was that certain Malay is uh, uh, Muslims um, uh, have sought to put a spell upon us. And that is the battle that we are in. We are not dealing with a benign, antique, ancient religion. We are dealing with a contemporary principality, a world ruler of darkness an invisible but literal power that can manipulate and um, uh, uh, cause all kinds of situations uh, to arise. Therefore, I ask your help in this way, that you will be very wise in the way that you use the tapes of these times and the information. The main burden we have is to somehow or other um, make the church and the believer aware of what we are facing in our day and generation and what really is one of the roots, if not the root of our problem here. Now I want to turn to a scripture in um, Psalm 83, the 83rd Psalm, The 83rd Psalm, I will read from verse 1. O God, keep not thou silence, hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They take crafty counsel against thy people and consult together against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel 
may be no more in a remembrance, for they have consulted together with one consent. Against thee do they make a covenant, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarines, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. And then if we read again verse 13, O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, a stubble before the wind, as the fire that burneth the forest, and as the flame that setteth the mountains on fire, so pursue them with thy tempest, and terrify them with thy storm. Fill their faces with confusion, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever, yea, let them be confounded and perish, that they may know that thou alone, whose name is the Lord, art the most high over all the earth. Now, dear friends, I don't know how many of you have heard me speak upon this subject. Um, if you have, I hope that this uh, time this morning will not be uh, stale or uh, just uh, repetitious. But I believe that this subject is so important that it can can bear almost word by word repetition again and again until the Spirit of God can get this truth into our hearts. We can argue till we're blue in the face about the right of the Jewish people to be here in this land and all the other reasons that we may muster for their being here. But in my estimation, the real issue here in the Middle East is neither a political issue, nor a nationalist issue, nor an economic issue, nor a military issue. It is a theological issue. And only when it is seen in that light that it is a truly theological issue do we begin to understand this violent antagonism uh, for this nation and for this people after all the antagonism um, was long before the politics that have recently come about. Some people blame so much of our present troubles upon the present government. Well, there's no government without failings or shortcomings. But we have had this problem long before this government came into being, and indeed long before there was a state of Israel. It is not really a political issue, this matter in the Middle East. And it certainly isn't an economic issue. I've often thought about this little land, a postage stamp, when we compare it with the rest of the world and some of the other nations even around us, 8,000 square miles, no larger than the Principality of Wales, no larger than the state of Indiana, a little less than, than the, um, uh, the land of Portugal or Hungary, 
this little country? What is the great fight over this country? Why this ongoing 35 years of continuous battle, continuous antagonism, continuous attempts to destroy and liquidate not only the state, but even the people that make it up? Certainly it can't be simply a matter to do with oil or a matter to do with diamonds or a matter to do with gold. All the gold and the diamonds are in South Africa. All the oil is in our neighbors around us as far as we know. Um, uh, we haven't even got coal reserves or natural gas reserves here in this country. We have some chemicals in the Dead Sea region, but so has Jordan and so have some of our neighbors. We haven't even got rivers to talk about. Israel is a country which has harnessed the one little stream that runs down its center called the River Jordan. But those of you who come from Africa or from the North American continent will know you have rivers that you don't even know their names which could swallow up the Jordan 20 times. I have been with American friends, we have crossed a, a river in their own ear and asked them what the name is and they don't even know. But I could put the River Jordan into it anything up to 20 times some of those rivers. Even the River Thames, which is a small river compared with some of the other rivers of the world. I mean, the River Jordan is a little stream compared with Old Father Thames. And when you think that our Arab neighbors have two of the greatest rivers, one of the greatest rivers in the world, the Nile, and the other, the Euphrates and Tigris, I mean, it cannot be to do with water reserves or, or anything along that line. Um, even on the question of nationalism, um, uh, Zionism versus Palestinianism, it is an interesting fact of history that um, uh, 40, 50 years ago, uh, they never talked, the Arabs never talked about themselves as Palestinians. I can remember when you asked somebody, uh, um, what are you? Are you a Palestinian? No, they said, we are Arab. Arab. It was the Jews who called themselves Palestinians. That's the funny thing. Uh, 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 the Yeshuv always called themselves, we are Palestinian Jews, they said. This whole question of the, of the Pala, Palestine Palestinian has come up since 1965 with the birth of the Palestine Liberation Organization. Some people seem to think it's just a question of Zionism versus Palestinianism, Palestinianism versus Zionism. Uh, there may be, of course, obviously, some truth in it, but to say that it is the root cause of the Middle East problem, I think, is to miss the whole point. No, my dear friends, the real issue here in the Middle East is a theological issue. It is to do with Islam. Islam is the key to this Middle East problem that we have. Now it is an interesting fact that there are only two ideologies in the world uh, today which are one way or another dedicated to the removal of the Christian church. 
One is Marxism and the other is Islam. Now it is true that um, Marxism constitutionally, what communist Marxist country doesn't have written into its constitution the, the freedom of religion and the right to worship as you wish. Everyone has, China, uh, uh, Russia, uh, all the uh, Eastern European countries, Cuba, all of them have it written into their constitution. The practice is entirely different. Uh, whether you're allowed to have places of worship, whether license will be given to you to have a building for worship is another matter. Whether you're permitted to educate children is another matter. Whether you're permitted to share your faith with others outside of the walls of a licensed building is another matter. Now, Islam also has certain, um, or you could almost say, uh, it gives certain constitutional rights. It says that the people of the book, the Jews and the Christians, will be permitted to worship. They are free to worship and they are under the protection of Islam. But when it comes to practice, Islam undermines that freedom by more than anything else an eroding fear and inhibition until the Christians become so on the defensive, so afraid that in the end they are compromised and are unable to move. That is why, my dear friends, Marxism is not a flesh and blood matter, essentially. Nor is Islam. It is, they are spirits from hell. They are empowered, inspired, and directed by forces of darkness, whether they know it or not. Now it is interesting that Marxist rulers will give absolutely no credence whatsoever to invisible powers and forces, yet they are directed, empowered, inspired by forces that are unseen but literal. But I am not here to talk about Marxism. I only wish to say it's a very interesting thing that Hinduism maybe at times be violent, but it has never had as an object the actual destruction of the, church, of the Christian church, nor even has Shintoism, which has a very much more militaristic outlook and attitude. And certainly not Buddhism, or Confucianism, or Taoism, or these other um, religions of the world. But Islam has by its very nature a, 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 an object to triumph. In other words, we can say Islam is triumphalist. Now, so of course is Judaism and Christianity. After all, Judaism teaches from the book of Daniel that there's going to come a day when the saints of the Most High will possess the kingdom and they are going to reign forever and ever. Now, if that's not triumphalist, what is? That's a triumphalist position. In the end, the Most High, the living God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob is going to triumph in this world. 
and all the nations of the world are going to come up to Jerusalem and out of Zion is going to go forth the law. That is a basic tenet of Judaism. In the end it's going to happen when the Messiah comes, when the nations are turned to God and they all speak a pure language and worship the Lord. That's triumphalist. And so is Christianity triumphalist. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's triumphalist. Then you think of the book of Revelation and that marvelous cry, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's triumphalist, thank God. So uh, both Judaism and Christianity have at their very heart a triumphalist position, but so has Islam. Islam believes that it is the fulfillment of God's program for the nations. It is the last phase in God's revelation of himself to the nations of this world and is predestined to win so that in the end there will be nothing but Islam from end to end of the earth. That is the position of Islam. It believes it is God's last word. As it is contained in the Quran, it is God's last word to man. Now, we must look at this just a little more carefully, a little more in depth. Uh, the fact is that um, Islam teaches God did begin with the Jews. And he began by choosing the Jews, uh, by choosing Abraham, and then by revealing himself uh, to the Jews. But according to Islam, the Jews were a stiff-necked and obstinate people, and they corrupted the revelation in what we know as the Old Testament and have put in their own ideas and twisted it according to their own opinions and outlook. Therefore, God turned away from them. And in particular, when he sent to them, which this is a point that Islam teaches, when God, Allah, sent to them the Messiah, who was born of a virgin and had a miraculous ministry, they rejected him. And God turned away from the Jews. To whom did he turn? Islam teaches that he turned to the Christians. And he began to reveal himself to the Christians. And all kinds of mighty things in and through the Christians. But the Christians likewise were corrupt. They also misinterpreted his revelation. And they began to twist all kinds of things in what, they, what has come to be called the New Testament, according to Islam. So God finally turned away from the Christians in the 6th century. 
and he turned to a simple, illiterate man, a man who could neither read nor write, called Muhammad, in uh, Saudi Arabia. And he, through the, the angel Gabriel, began to reveal himself to Muhammad. And he began to put right all that the Jews had corrupted in the Old Testament and all that the Christians had corrupted in the New Testament in what we now call the Quran. It is a very interesting thing that in the Kaaba, in Mecca, that great black meteorite stone enclosed in curtains long before Muhammad it was a center of the grossest and most superstitious idolatry with one idol for every day of the lunar year. It is also a very interesting thing that one of those idols was called Allah. And when um, God, Allah, revealed himself through Gabriel to Muhammad, he told him, go to Mecca, go to the Kaaba, and destroy every one of those idols, including the one that has been given my name. Now, it is absolutely true that Allah is, in many ways, akin in Arabic to the Hebrew for the unmentionable name of God. This we understand. But whether uh, Allah um, of Islam is the living God of the Bible is another matter. Whether in fact he is a demonic being that has uh, disguised himself as the living God. That is the question. We have to say this that when we really look at the, the triumph of Islam, we are seeing something phenomenal. Not in the history of the world has any religion swept so rapidly, so powerfully, and so completely over the face of the inhabited earth. Within a century, it had swept north, south, east, and west, carrying everything before it with its message that Islam had superseded Judaism and Christianity and was God's last word. Now the word Islam means submission. Allah demands the submission of all the nations and of all peoples everywhere to his word, to his will, and to his prophet Muhammad. It is very interesting that Islam, when it comes to the matter of Christianity, it is very interesting what Islam teaches. Now, so many Christians, this is where so many Christians are in such ignorance. They do not know what Islam really teaches about the gospel and about the Lord Jesus. Let's stop for one moment, because here we come perhaps more to an understanding of this matter than anywhere else. Islam teaches that Jesus was indeed the Messiah promised to the patriarchs and through the prophets of the Old Covenant. Promised to the Jews that he was born of the Jews. 
and secondly that he was born of a virgin now that is a most remarkable thing Islam teaches that Mary the mother of Jesus was a virgin when the Holy Spirit conceived within her Jesus and that he was born of a virgin in this land that is why the Quran teaches that Mary should not be worshipped but she, she should be honored as a prophetess above all other women the third thing Islam teaches is that Jesus had a miraculous ministry indeed so miraculous that the Quran actually adds two or three miracles that we have no record of in the New Testament fourthly Jesus was rejected by according to the Quran a stiff-necked and obstinate Jewish people they rejected him and they crucified him but God would not allow Jesus to die at the hands of the Jews this is the teaching of Islam instead he spirited him away from the cross into heaven like Enoch he was not because God took him now I hope you will notice one very solemn and significant matter they believe in a virgin birth a miraculous ministry the messiahship of Jesus the rejection of Jesus and crucifixion of Jesus but not the death of Jesus so there is neither an atoning death for sin nor is there a bodily resurrection for Jesus never died then they also believe that Jesus is with God in paradise and will return at the end of the age Muslims believe in the return of Jesus now my dear friends if you take this whole thing you begin to understand why it's so hard for Muslims to come to the Lord you have the whole gamut of truth without the heart of the matter the virgin birth, the miraculous ministry, the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, his ascension, his return. But the heart of the matter is not there. The atoning death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no new birth by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There is no life of God coming into us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus because there was no finished work on the cross but they say Jesus was the greatest of all the prophets before Muhammad within a century this movement of Islam as I have already said spread north south east and west it had it carried the 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 uh, uh, the message of Allah right through the whole of Central Asia right up almost into Russia everywhere whole Christian communities went over lock stock and barrel to Islam 
the Nestorian church, one of the greatest churches of antiquity, was well nigh destroyed in Central Asia by Islam. It went all the way to India, all the way to northern India. It went all the way south to the whole of Saudi Arabia, purging it of Jews and of Christians. It went over into North Africa, took the whole of Egypt, the greatest center of Christianity um, and of Christian uh, uh, teaching uh, in the ancient world and all, all well nigh destroyed the church in Egypt. The Copts today are the original Egyptians. They are the ones who manage somehow or other to survive, to suffer for some 1,300 years under the yoke of Islam. Then it went on its triumphant way, right the way through Libya, right the way through the whole of the North, North Africa, where all the great Christian churches were destroying them all. These are the places where you, you, you look very hard today to find a Christian witness. These were the great centers of the gospel in the old days. It then crossed over the Straits of Gibraltar and took most of Spain and at least a third of France. It comes as a great shock to many Western Christians to realize just how near Islam came to taking Europe. It was in the Battle of Poitiers in 732. For those of you who are French, and maybe some others who are not so ignorant, you will have heard, of course, of the famous French hero Charles Martel. It was at the battle of Poitiers, by the grace of God alone, certainly not because of anything in the Christians, because of the grace of God alone that the great powerful Islamic forces, which until then had conquered and conquered and conquered and conquered, were defeated. 732. Now Poitiers is only, I think I'm right, less than 200 kilometers from Paris. In other words, if Islam had continued its conquest, Paris would have fallen, the whole of France would have fallen, the lowlands would have fallen, Germany would have fallen, and in all probability they may have come across the channel to Britain and taken Britain. Then, my friends, many of you would have been born Muslims. At the defeat of the Islamic forces, in the beginning of the 8th century, they retired to Spain, where they managed to hold on to most of Spain for another two or three centuries until they were driven back to North Africa. But that was not the end of the attempt of Islam to win the world for Allah and for the word of the Prophet, Muhammad. As late as the 15th century, the last great attempt to take the whole of Europe was launched. And the Islamic forces this time swept through Greece, subjugating the whole of Greece and the Greek islands, all of Yugoslavia, a lot of Bulgaria, part of Romania, part of Hungary, and came right up to the gates of Vienna, where we have the great Battle of Vienna in 1483. 
Now, if those of you, especially you from the North American continent, you must get hold of an atlas and have a look. Look at Poitiers in France and look at Vienna and you will begin to see just the inroads that Islam made in Europe. By the grace of God alone, and certainly not because of any merit on the Christian side, God gave the victory to the Christian forces in the Battle of Vienna, and Islam was flung back into Yugoslavia and into Greece, where it remained in control, and virtually Islam stagnated from that day. It was as if it suddenly, because of its theological outlook, felt that somehow or other God had deserted them. And so it turned in on itself, licked its wounds, and basically stagnated until this century. It was in this century that the great discovery was made under the sands of incredible wealth. It is one of the ironies of history that the British, with their shrewd intuition for anything of great value, turned their noses up at the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, feeling that all it could ever be was a load of trouble. They promised it through Lawrence to the Arabs, they were more interested in the Sinai because of the Suez Canal and the whole area east the eastern part of the Mediterranean. But under those arid wildernesses, those great waterless deserts, was fabulous wealth. When that black wealth, that oil, was discovered, at first, no, no one in the Arab world really recognized what had been found. But little by little by little it became apparent that they now had a weapon in their hands by which they could hold the whole world to ransom. Is it any small wonder that Islamic leaders worth their salt as Muslims bleed and recognize the hand of Allah in the discovery of oil and believed that by this discovery and by the right exercise of the wealth that would accrue from its sale they would be able to have in this world economic clout which nothing else possibly could give them. They have used it to the full. It is one of the great sadnesses of today that so many of the Western governments do not recognize the theological nature of the conflict that we are in in the Middle East. Just because Judaism and Christianity by and large are spineless, toothless and anemic, in those Western countries, they naturally feel that Islam, being as old as the others, almost as old, relatively speaking, an ancient, antique religion, must also be toothless, spineless, and anemic. If they cannot conceive that the Quran is actually dictating national policy, or is inspiring attitudes, 
actually producing outlooks that are determining the course of nations here in the Middle East. But my dear friends, the evidence abounds for it on every side. You cannot listen to uh, King Hussein of Jordan, courageous a little man as he is, or King Hassan of Morocco, moderate as they both are in their opinions. There's no way that you can listen to them. They do not speak for Islam. The real voice of Islam is heard in the voice of the Ayatollah Khomeini. The real voice of Islam is heard in Muammar Gaddafi. That's where you hear the real voice of Islam. That's where the curtain is torn aside and you look upon the heart of Islam. Now, my friends, I have to be very careful. When you talk like this, people do not dissociate Muslims from Islam. And then they end up by being bitter and negative and angry with Muslims. My dear friends, there's not a Muslim in this world that Jesus has not died to say. Not one Muslim soul is of less value in the sight of God than any other soul in this world, including a Jewish soul or a Christian soul. And so I want to make it abundantly clear that what I have to say about Islam is directed against the ideology and even more against the spirit and the principality that has empowered and inspired it and not against the people. I have some of my friends, some of dear friends I have within this city who are Muslims. I love them. And I think they actually love me. Nor is it a question of speaking against Arabs, as if it's the in thing to downgrade Arabs, devalue Arabs, as if inherent with a love for the Jewish people, you have to devalue the Arab, throw them out of the scarring. We know it, we Jews. We know what it is like to be treated like off-scarring, always devalued, always degraded, always put out. Do make a distinction between what we are saying, what I am saying about Islam and the Arab, Islam and the Muslim. But my friends, if you want to hear the authentic voice of Islam, you do not hear it in King Fahid of Saudi Arabia or King Hussein of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan or King Hassan of Morocco or President Mubarak of Egypt. You hear it in the voice of Khomeini. You hear it in the voice of Gaddafi. Those are the people who speak for Islam. And when we see what they say, we understand the heart of this matter. They believe that Islam is destined to triumph in the 20th century, that it is destined to purge the world of Christianity and Judaism, that it is destined once again to subjugate all Christians and Jews to the crescent.
my friends, you only have to look at two movements that are absolutely contemporary, that have only arisen in the last decade or so in this world to see the truth of what I am saying. There is the Islamic revival and there is the Islamic revolution. These twins, both birthed, conceived and birthed by this principality that is behind Islam, that received such a crippling defeat, who retired but has renewed from hell with a, a refreshed vitality and vigor. The Islamic revival is something that is sweeping the whole Islamic world from the Philippines to the Western nations. Would to God there was such a revival amongst believers. It is gripping men everywhere. When I first came to this country, you hardly ever saw an Arab young man with a beard. You hardly ever saw these girls all dressed in this sort of pastel colors with this scarf round their face. Now, wherever you go, you will see young men with beards, not Jews, Arabs I'm talking about. And that's normally a sign that they are Khomeini followers. Or in the pastel, long dress and scarf, the women, Khomeini followers. Some of them are paid. They receive a subsidy to dress like that. We know that. But nevertheless, my friends, you've only got to look at the whole Islamic world and those of you who work in the Islamic world, you know that I'm talking the truth. This revival has gripped the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, right the way through Pakistan. It has come all the way through Iran. It is going right through Saudi Arabia. It is in Jordan. It is in Syria. Even President Assad has had trouble. Why did he bomb Hama with the destruction of men, women and children in February of 1982? At least 18,000, more likely 30,000 people. So they had to close off the whole of that third greatest city of Syria so that men, uh, people could not travel in for fear of plague disease. Why did he do it? Because of the Islamic revival and the Muslim Brotherhood that took to the streets and called from the minarets for a, 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 a rising up against President Assad. Do you know how many paid up members of the Muslim Brotherhood there are in Egypt, a nation of some 38 million people? Seven million. Seven million paid-up members of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. This, this revival has gone through Nigeria. It has gone right through all Western Africa, Senegal, Mauritania. It has swept everywhere. That's why all the so-called moderate leaders of Arab or Islamic nations are so fearful. They know there'll come a day when their throats will be slit. So they are trying somehow or other to compromise with it. My friends, the result of this Islamic revival is very interesting. First of all, everywhere you go, you will see mosques. If you go to Gaza, there is, I remember the time when nearly on every street corner a new mosque was going up in Gaza. I couldn't believe it. I had no idea then of the Islamic revival. That's when I first began to hear about it and recognize it. It costs money to build mosques, especially when it's in stone. 
the troubles in the Philippines, the troubles in Indonesia, are all the product of the Islamic disturbances. This great revival that is taking hold of, of Muslims everywhere. Code. Now this is a code of the 8th century, harsh in many ways. Saudi Arabia has returned to it, Iran has returned to it, Pakistan has returned to it, Egypt has partly returned to it, Morocco has partly returned to it, Libya has completely returned to it, Tunis is now passing legislation to partly return to it. All the Arab and Islamic nations are going back to an 1880 century legal code. That's why they have public floggings in Saudi Arabia and I Iran and Pakistan and Libya. Because that is the Sharia code. That's why a man's hand is cut off for stealing. That's why eyes are being put out for adultery. It's a return to the Sharia code. Now, my dear friends, you may say, well, at least it's some kind of morality. Yes, it could be. But I am not arguing about whether it's moral or immoral, what I am just saying is this. It is amazing in the 20th century to see nation after nation returning to a primitive, original, legal code. It is the result of revival. This revival is everywhere in evidence in the West. Take Britain with one of the largest, now one of the largest, fastest growing Muslim populations in the whole Western Hemisphere. All over the British Isles, churches and chapels have now become mosques. I'm not saying not in tens of thousands, but it is an amazing thing to see. Chapels and churches being bought up by Islam and converted into mosques for Islamic worship. The largest mosque in the Western Hemisphere was built in Regent's Park. At its opening, the Archbishop of Canterbury was present. And so was the Queen, Elizabeth II of Great Britain. And in their presence, then Crown Prince Fahid, now King Fahid of Saudi Arabia, said, We Muslims believe that if we can take London for Islam, we can take the whole Western Hemisphere. Those of you who are Swiss will know that they are, the same is happening in Geneva. Those of you who are from Italy will know the same thing has happened in Rome. Everywhere, Islamic colleges, Islamic institutions, even universities like the old University of Exeter have had their library so endowed by uh, Saudi Arabian sources with the proviso that no Jew be allowed to use that library. That is the way it is going. Why? Because Islam believes that without aggressive evangelism that can be left aside. Allah is behind them. And with oil and with gold rightly invested, slowly but surely they are going to win the day. Yandalam said at the beginning of this time that the Palestinian issue 
was one of the most influential issues that Islam has used for its expansion. It is true. This Palestinian issue, so sad in itself, could have been solved 30 years ago, 20 years ago. It could have been solved by absorbing all these refugees in the different neighboring countries around us. After all, this country had to uh, absorb 600,000 Jewish refugees from Arab countries. We did it in three years. There is absolutely no reason at all why the Palestinians could have, but they were herded into Palestinian refugee camps and kept within them in misery as a political uh, means of manipulation and pressure upon Western power. Added to this Islamic revival, is the Islamic Revolution. And the Islamic Revolution, of course, its key figure is the Ayatollah Khomeini. Ayatollah means, in person, son of God. I have said again and again all over the world, I cannot believe that any real born-again Christian in touch with God can look into the eyes of the Ayatollah Khomeini and not see a demonized personality. What an incredible state of affairs we have come to when little children of five years of age have been executed with their parents in Iran and the Western media never as much as mention it. That is the force of this principality behind Islam. It is able to blind the media against what it is doing and focus its whole attention upon Israel. If Israel was to execute in cold blood legally a five-year-old Palestinian Arab child, the whole world would rise up in fury and anger and we wouldn't hear the end of it for months and months and months. But tens of little five-year-old children have been executed in Iran. Some of us in this country saw the pictures of those beautiful Persian girls who were hanged two months ago. Graduates of universities in Iran for no other reason than that they were Baha'i. That is Islam in its naked, raw state. Let them talk all over the world about the fact that in Islam there is no distinction between race or creed or color. There is no um, uh, matter, no distinction between men and women. Men and women are equal. We see it in its deeds. So my dear friends, <clears throat> the Islamic revolution <clears throat> which had its birth in Iran in the overthrow of the Shah of Iran 
is not just an Iranian revolution. The Khomeini has said again and again, it is for export. Those are his own words. It is for export. He wants every Islamic country to experience the same revolution on the part of the proletariat. That's why the Saudi rulers are frightened to death of Khomeini. That's why the sheikhs of the oil sheikhdoms all in the Gulf are frightened to death of Khomeini. They know that it's not long before he will die, but they're so fearful of his ideology, so fearful of who's going to come in his place. Furthermore, if it was only for export to Islamic countries, it would be bad enough. But the Ayatollah Khomeini and his other colleagues have said repeatedly that this uh, revolution is in the end to be exported to all the other nations. He has spoken, and here we hear the authentic voice of Islam. He has said, Israel is Satan. And the United States is the greater Satan. Those are the words of Khomeini. Now world domination is the, is the object of, uh, uh, of Islam. And as we can see, it is in fact coming to an, a point where at least it has very great, much greater influence than it has ever had before. I wonder whether it has greater influence actually today in, in the councils of the world, in the capitals of the world, than at any other time in its history. Now my friends, let me come to the heart of this matter. If it is true that Islam is triumphant, if it is true that it believes it has superseded Judaism and Christianity, if it is true as it believes that it is the last word of God to mankind, that it is the last phase in God's program for world history, then does it not become 100% clear in the darkest of colors that the recreation of a Jewish state in the 20th century is unthinkable in the eyes of Islam. This Judaism that has been superseded can be suffered providing the Jews are scattered all over the place, even in Arab and Islamic nations. As long as they just go to their synagogue and are treated as second-class citizens under the sovereignty and protection of Islam. But if they should somehow or other unite, regather in their ancient land, and repossess their ancient territory, 
then the whole of Islamic theology collapses because it could not happen unless God was in charge. The very concept of Islam is that God predestines all things. How then can there be a recreation of a Jewish state here in the Middle East? It would be bad enough if it was in Uganda, or if it was in Argentina, or if it was in Peru, or if it was in Alaska. That would be bad enough. But for to add insult to injury and allow the actual recreation of the state within the very perimeters of ancient Islamic heartlands, that is unthinkable and impossible. And that is why Khomeini describes Israel as the counterfeit of Satan. And that's why Gaddafi says again and again, we must use all our energy, all our resources, every single bit of money that we have to overcome this satanic counterfeit in our day and generation. You see, Jews and Christians are perfectly acceptable as far as this time is concerned, providing that they know their place. As long as they know that they are second class in the sense that they are special, they are not, they are not heathen. They have the same roots as Islam, but they are second class, my dear friends. Sometimes I feel this is how Christians treat Jews. It's the same kind of theology. We have totally displaced them. And therefore, uh, they can't be anything. How can God work amongst them and finish with them? However, to go back to the Islamic thing. Jews and Christians can be accepted, but my dear friend, the moment those Jews or Christians catch fire for their faith, become 100% for their faith, begin to believe absolutely in what God has given them, then in that moment they're on a collision course with Islam and they must be destroyed. Islam says it will suffer any Christian or Jew providing that Christian or Jew does not deny that the Quran is the absolute truth of God. Now this is why so many Christians, Arab Christians and others in Islamic countries live in fear. Because if they are too forceful in their proclamation of the gospel they can come into collision with the Islamic authorities. And even though there is constitutional freedom of religion, it doesn't go very far. Because when a mob comes and burns the place down and slaughters everyone and kills the preacher, the authorities just say very sad about it. But nothing is done. So my dear friends, Jews and Christians are, are acceptable, providing... They are toothless and anemic. I saw this with my own eyes. When I was first at college, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, I was my first opening up to all kinds of other peoples and cultures and philosophies. And of course, one went quite radical for a while. 
I, I, I remember I was nearly taken in by Marxism. I got, went so, so far along the radical path. And I used to think that Islam was a sister religion. Of Judaism and Christianity, after all, it's monotheistic, has the same roots. But it was in Egypt that I first saw the light on this whole matter. I was staying with servants of God, two missionaries in Suez, and I heard a great kerfuffle in the street. And I went out on the balcony. They were about, if I remember, the third or fourth floor. And looking down, I saw the whole of the avenue filled with a great crowd of shouting, fervent men. And looking more carefully, I saw two young men. I learnt later one was only 17 and one was 16. Dragged along with their tongues out. And then I, I only heard later, they had hooks through their tongues. It was the Muslim Brotherhood. The boys were too cock. They had been challenged whether they believed that Muhammad was the prophet of God. And faithfully they said, no, they could not say he was the prophet of God. For that, one had his tongue torn out and the other died. That was the day I woke up to the real nature of Islam. So, my dear friends, do you begin to see what I'm trying to say? What I am basically saying is this. The recreation of a modern Jewish state with its own cabinet, with its own government, with its own president, with its own prime minister, all Jewish, with a Jewish army, a Jewish navy, and a Jewish air force, with all the national institutions, is an affront to Islam which cannot be under any circumstance, circumstances compromised with. It has to be driven out as a foreign body. So in other words, my friends, what I'm saying is this, with all the shortcomings and failings of Israel, with all the blindness and disobedience that you may feel, you see, in Israelis or in Jews, the fact of the matter is, this is a confrontation between the Word of God and the Spirit of Islam. God has spoken and God is fulfilling His Word. And the Spirit of Islam has said, ah, we will not have it. The thing is on a collision course. So, my dear friends, when I hear about all these so-called moderate uh, powers such as Saudi Arabia, I feel so sorry for the American sec Secretary of State and the State Department that they can even be taken in by any, uh, any such ideas. My dear friends, that spirit of Islam's only got to move a few more inches and it'll take Saudi Arabia. Overnight, the same thing will happen in Saudi Arabia that happened in Iran. The whole thing will collapse and we shall witness an Islamic revolution rising up and taking the holy places of Mecca and Medina back for Islam. So much for all the modern equipment that's been poured into the Saudi armed forces as it was in the Iranian. All the states is doing is arming 
radical revolutionary Islamic forces because they do not perceive that the issue is a theological issue. It is something to do with the word of God and Islam in the last days. Now, my friends, if the recreation of the Jewish state is impossible and unthinkable in the eyes of Islam, what would you say when Jerusalem becomes the capital of that recreated Jewish state? That has to be an obscenity in the eyes of Islam. For Jerusalem, though not mentioned once in the Quran, is traditionally the place where Muhammad went up into heaven on his faithful steed, Burak. Therefore, to think that Jerusalem, the third most holy place in Islam, should become the capital of this recreated Jewish state is again to add insult to injury. No Saudi Arabian rulers if they are interested in survival and the preservation of their lives or of their royal house, could, as the custodians of the holy places of Mecca and Medina and other Islamic holy places, agree to Jerusalem being the capital of a Jewish state. And if there are ever such talks or negotiations, you can be sure that the only reason Islam will ever agree is to wait for a better chance to destroy Israel. But I can take you further in this battle. We have come to one area at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, the Promised Land. We have journeyed into it to one small area of a few square miles called Jerusalem. But I can take you within those few square miles to just a matter of a half a mile. And that is the heart of this conflict. You know where it is? Less than a mile or two from this Binyane Ha'uma, the Temple Mount. That is the heart of this whole battle. There where the temple once stood, where God first revealed himself nationally. That is the point, the focal point of the battle. It is always of great interest to me that on the place where the temple stood, or at least the burnt offering, however you like to look at it, there now stands the Mosque of Umar. And written around it are those words from the Quran. God has no need of friend or companion or son. Do not say that he has a son. God has no son. Worship God alone. That's why the Crusaders called it the abomination of desolation. That standard where it ought not to stand. Interestingly, although some would not agree with me, on the southern end of the Temple Mount is where the Solomon's porches once were. Some believe it was on the eastern side. And that's where the early church met. That's where, as uh, my brother David Thorson said last night, he believes Pentecost, or I do too. 
there in those porches today. It is the site of one of the most sacred mosques in Islam, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So where first the temple was for the Jewish people, and where Pentecost came and the church was born, both of them are now crowned with Islamic mosques. That is the heart of this day. Now, my friends, I'm not going to say any more <clears throat> this morning. I will wait until the next seminar. I want to talk then about the Lebanon. But I will say this for those of you who want to go to another uh, seminar on that occasion. Do you not believe this is the explanation for the Lebanon? The Lebanon, the Lebanese, Arabs. So why doesn't the Islamic world allow this Arab state to be sovereign, to be free? Why a civil war in which 120,000 people die, many of them in the most brutalized circumstances? Nothing to do with Israel. I'm not talking about the Operation Peace for Galilee war. I'm talking about the 75-76 civil war of Lebanon in which 120,000 Lebanese died. It is because the spirit of Islam cannot brook a Christian state within its perimeter, let alone a Jewish state. That's why I have said everywhere, uh, not uh, so much amongst Christians, but uh, in our own people and with the Lebanese, that really our two nations belong together. There is no hope for us unless we have again an alliance like Haram of Tyre for their survival as well as our preservation humanly speaking now I know we have the word of God for our preservation but my dear friends that Lebanon may have been the sin spot of the Middle East it certainly was Beirut exceeded any other western city in sin and even in the days not so long ago. But it was also the center of gospel work for the whole Arab world. All the publishing presses in Arabic, all the gospel work, culpatage work, all the evangelistic work, all the radio work. It was all centered in the Lebanon. My friends, it's not a matter of flesh and blood. It is a matter of some principality that cannot be seen with these eyes, which has said, I will not have this in Islamic domain. But to come back again and finish this seminar, do you begin to see now why some of us are so burdened about the need for intercessors? 
There is no other way this battle is going to be fought and won unless the people of God rise up in the Lord Jesus, take that full armor of God, and together, covered, carefully, not taking on these principalities easily, as the church, begin to stand for the fulfillment of God's purpose. In the Middle East, it is my conviction that God is going to use Israel to break the spirit of Islam. And when you think about it, it is perfectly sensible and logical spiritually. The Christians, the house of God, are spread all over the earth. How can Islam have a confrontation with them? It can have a confrontation with them within its own territories. But then all its vested interests in the West will come into question. Because Western governments might start to uh, say things privately, unofficially, about what is being done. No, my friends, I've said it again and again. <clears throat> the Christians may be all over the earth, but how can Islam have a confrontation with them? As far as Islam is concerned, they are individuals everywhere, scattered through the nations. But when you have a Jewish people regathered back to the land promised to their forefathers, reconstituted as a nation, with physical, literal, national institutions, with their own government, with their own army, navy, and air force, with their own universities, then you have something concrete, something that Islam can get its hands on, something that it can take hold of and say, this is it. So God has said, I will lead the way, the blind by a way that they know not. In paths that they have not known will I lead them. I will make light, the darkness light before them and the crooked places straight. These things will I do and I will not forsake them. God is using this nation, which is a nation like any other nation, with all its failings and shortcomings. He's using them in the front line of a battle with the forces of darkness. Now, if that is the case, I know who's going to win. There is absolutely no question about it. God, if this is a matter of the Word of God and the powers of darkness, it is the Word of God which is going to trust. Now, friends, I do hope that what I've said this morning will not breed in you a kind of antagonism toward the Muslims or the Arabs, as if somehow or other they are responsible for all of this. I hope instead it will put into your heart a love, a compassion, a gentleness, and above all an anguish of spirit 
that God will break this cruel yoke that has sat upon the Muslim shoulders for so long and bring millions out into his life. I believe that that is what this whole battle is all about. And I think we are building up to something. It would never surprise me if suddenly the forces of the Islamic Revolution and the forces of Marxism joined hands in a common mutual interest of hatred for Israel in order to destroy it. If that were so, I see Ezekiel 38 and 39 in an even clearer light. Then it could be that on the mountains of Israel these two forces, like some great Goliath, will meet their end. And the world will then be in a vacuum in which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ could be preached with tremendous possibilities of a huge harvest. May God give us light on this complex, difficult, and controversial subject. Shall we pray?